Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Rick Buddy. Right, Rick, what are we doing today? So we're going to do a January roundup. Oh, fantastic. So I've done a, quite a few of these on my own recently, but it's, it's, it's really a lot more fun to do it with a friend. And we're just going to run through the best and the most interesting stuff that we've done in January. Kicking off, I think, with... Well, actually, the first thing in January was our review of 2018 where we had a look back as a group and, and had an idea about what had really sort of got us excited, what has got us interested in various different things this year. And um, there's was, there was some sort of flippant answers there. There's some quite good stuff in there. Um, I enjoyed the thing about which books to read, because there's a whole variety of stuff there. I put out that I would want everybody to read the book around uh, Why We Sleep. I think that's just transformational about how I've started to live my life and how I've started to advise people around health issues, about well-being, about burnout, about performance, and in particular, my passion, about how important sleep is in education and learning and creativity. All the kind of things that we enjoy doing. So that would be my big one to take from there. There are loads of other suggestions. Anything else that sort of bounced out of that blog post for you? Well, you know what? I just think it's a really good thing to read because you hear about loads of other people and what they think they achieved in 2018, what they hope to achieve in 2019. And things to look out for is really good. That was a nice thing to, to add to it. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I think so too. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff in there about, you know, best paper of the year, best podcast, best, book, best books. Have a look at that. It's a, it's a bit of a long read, but it is a bit of a highlight. And so we'd like a bit of a highlight at the end of the year, don't we? Absolutely. And I think it will make you think... I enjoyed taking part in that exercise because it made me focus my mind about what I'd like to achieve in 2019 and hopefully it'll do that for you too. What are you going to achieve in 2019? Oh well there were so, there were so many things. We've got the uh, NIHR incubator for emergency care which is going to uh, support academic careers and data, having industry partnerships to increase our use of medical technologies in practice. So really exciting here for me. Basically, the bottom line from that is Rick is a really busy guy at the moment. He's doing some incredible stuff here, particularly around diagnostics in Manchester. And you're all over the place talking, walking, researching, doing all sorts. But have a look at the blog. You've got all the information there um, about that and more. Then we went off to Liz Crow. Really interesting one, actually, I thought, about New Year's resolutions, because we all make them. Um, I am obviously um, already 10 kilos lighter than I was at the beginning. Uh, okay, my New Year's resolution isn't working either. But she talked about this relationship between well-being and New Year's resolutions. Quite interesting, actually, a different perspective about how to make the world a slightly better place for you. So start small. Look at rewards rather than punishments if you want to change things in your life. Don't think it's you know all about just I've got to achieve this or not achieve I've got to run an Ironman or not well actually there may be interim things that you can do there and it's not all or nothing you can do make progress towards something and that's fine and in fact for most people making a dramatic lifestyle change either in their career their personal life or anything it's actually quite difficult to do set yourself some little steps and then commit and actually committing with a friend committing publicly is actually quite a good thing to do so I don't know whether you had any New Year's resolutions <laughs> it's quite hard to articulate one or two but you know what's really good you talk about the disappointment of not keeping a New Year's resolution by you know February and one of the points <laughs> that Liz made was about avoiding binary thinking because it is so disappointing when you you know have failed to live up to what you thought you might live up to on New Year's Eve but you know and it's only February but avoiding the binary thinking talking about you know how you can move towards where you need to be rather than all or nothing yeah and there's an old NLP thing actually about you're more successful at change if you're making a move towards something as opposed to running away from something. And that's been a profound thing in my life, particularly when I've been making interesting decisions about what I want to do. If I'm going to do a change because I want to make things better, 
it's generally been successful. If I'm making a change because I'm not happy with something, it doesn't feel quite the same. And and there is some principles in there. But what Liz put in here is from a dance teacher said recently, and if you want to go somewhere, you need to look in that direction. Quite like that. It's good yeah, thinking. Very good. Yeah. Liz always writes such great stuff. Um, so you do check that one out. It's very yeah. inspiring. I don't think we're doing it justice here. Go and, go and have a chat with Liz. And then um, tetanus. Yeah, so new guidelines. I know. And tetanus prophylaxis. You know what? It's one of those things that I think every emergency physician thinks they've got a handle on, but <laughs> probably we don't remember the uh, guidelines of verbatim. We don't. And actually, um, I know of some audits in a hospital not a million miles away from where I'm sat now that show that we probably don't know the guidelines as well as we should. Um, actually, because we're potentially over-treating in some areas. So it's changed. So what was happening in the UK, and this will vary across the planet, is that... Basically, if you'd had your childhood immunizations and your booster um, in your early 20s, that was it. Didn't need tetanus ever again. And that's not the case. So they've changed it and they've gone back to requiring a 10 year booster. Now, there were some interesting debates about this because this whole thing about vaccination for tetanus is that we're predicting that people's immunization will actually fall over time but what i didn't know is there are actually point of care testing now that you can do to detect whether people have actually got tetanus immunization active and then decide whether or not to give them a booster or in those cases where you've got dirty or or contaminated wounds whether you actually need to give them an immunoglobulin so it's kind of interesting really so there you go yeah fascinating it's a really good uh, thing to have a blog post on these guidelines because it's obviously going to be quite hard work to plow your way through it um, the whole guideline but the blog post makes it accessible brings out the key points a reminder of many of the things that have stayed in there about uh, tetanus prone wounds with some subtle differences that uh, will help you to make sure that when you're practicing in the emergency department that you are practicing according to the current guidance yeah so tetanus prones change hasn't it so tetanus prone puncture type wounds um, acquired in a contaminated environment wounds with foreign bodies, compound fractures, wounds or burns with systemic sepsis, interestingly, and some animal bites, so um, if they're digging in the soil or if it's an agricultural animal. And then beyond that is the high risk, which is now a smaller group, heavy contamination with soil or manure, wounds or burns with extensive devitalised tissue, and wounds or burns requiring surgical intervention that's delayed for more than six hours. And I think actually those last two are the ones where we might not give the right treatment, we might under-treat. So delayed intervention, because that can happen overnight. And those are the ones in some areas, if you're busy, if theatres are full, then they need the immunoglobulin, not just the vaccination. And also the um, devitalised tissue. Again, how much devitalised tissue and timings wise, you might want to maybe give the immunoglobulin more often, but in a, in a more focused group of patients. So interesting stuff there. Absolutely core emergency medicine you need to know this bound to appear in an exam somewhere so yeah go and have a read of that and then next up we had the wonderful claire richmond of course who was fantastic at the saint Edmunds live conference gave a terrific talk and she contributed a fantastic blog post for us on the journey that matters yeah so claire's a bit of a hero of ours she works down in sydney hems with natalie may of course and she came over as one of our keynote speakers for saint Edmunds live delivered a really interesting talk about bringing in a whole group of ideas around excellence, performance, training, development, honesty, feedback, and built that in and around retrieval medicine. So how it is that when you're training and you're trying to improve and provide excellence in your service, 
how you develop all of those things together. Now, we've put the video and we've put the podcast up already, so you probably heard it. So I'm not going to go in too much detail here, but if you're interested in becoming as good as you possibly can be, so this concept of self-actualization, if you want to go back to Maslow's hierarchy, then this is the sort of thing that you should be listening to, particularly if you're in a pre-hospital critical care or emergency medicine service. So again, thanks for Claire for coming over and um, yeah go and have a read of that it's very important stuff and we were very honoured to have her here in Manchester and then our next piece after that came from one of our wonderful professors Dan Horner who talked about quite a mouthful serum neurofilament light chain um, which can be used as a tool to prognosticate patients who've had a cardiac arrest it's quite interesting this is a spin-off well it's not it's not a spin-off it's probably a bit rude it's a it's a trial that came out of the ttm trial you remember the target temperature management trial that was uh, run which showed that there was no particular difference in outcome between patients with rosc who were cooled to either 33 or 35 one of the things that they did look at in that trial in a number of different ways was to prognosticate outcome because this is a real issue in cardiac arrest patients and I do remember at the time, I hope I remember correctly, that one of the things that came out is that you can't prognosticate early. You have to wait 72 hours before you really know what's going on. And I think that has become practice now. But this is different. So serum neurofilament light chains are, well, you'll like this, Rick. They're considered by some to be a bit like the troponin of the brain. Well, so, I'm excited. No, it's about troponins again. So you're a happy man. But the idea is that when you have injured brain tissue, you get release of these into the serum. And it's a non-specific marker for brain damage, if you like. Now, there's been other stuff knocking around for this for years. So a lot of people have done research in S100B. And I've always felt that that's one of those tests which has been looking for an indication. It's not a very specific test. It's not been very good. What this shows in those patients in the TTM trial, not all of them, they did, they did, get, they did lose quite a few, and that's potentially a criticism, is that early on, you can find patients who are clearly going to do well with um, a certain level of TT, a certain level of um, neurofilament light chains, and you're also going to be identify a group of patients who are almost certainly going to do very badly, either die or have very very poor neurological outcomes. Now, why is that important? I think it's really important if you've got any experience of this about speaking to families, about thinking about things like donation, um, and just in generally managing expectations and understanding where you're going to go with patients. The point about it is, is we've never had anything which is as good as this for predicting outcome in the first 24 hours at 48 hours and then at 72 hours. So this is potentially a really interesting test that we might be able to offer. It's probably not going to change your management tomorrow. It probably means that you're not going to sort of stop treating patients with a certain level. But it, there's a lot more information in the system here. And Paul Young, who we respect hugely from... And the Antipodes, of course, who's a brilliant researcher in critical care, thinks that this is one of the most important studies around prognostics that we've seen ever. Yeah, well, you can see why. I mean, the area under the rock curve of 0.94 shows nearly perfect uh, accuracy. And this is for predicting the outcome, prognosticating patients early. And uh, that got even better when they added in some clinical information, which yep. is fantastic. Uh, got a fantastic specificity for... Um, for, for the uh, prognosis at uh, looking at a different at different cutoffs, so really exciting results. I mean, we we often herald the arrival of new biomarkers that have lots of promise and think they're going to deliver loads of changes in practice, and they actually fail to live up to that. But uh, this one does look like a very promising case. And I think the difference here is that this data was acquired 
and this is, this is going to sound paradoxical with a critical appraisal heads on, this data was actually acquired in the TTM trial. So it wasn't necessarily the focus of the trial here. And we see a lot of biomarker studies which are performed poorly, where you take a group of people who've got a terrible outcome, then you take a people who have a great outcome and do, and do that sort of post hoc analysis or um, the cohort analyses and, and just done very bad diagnostic studies. This actually with an RCT kind of convinces me more that this is probably a real finding because the because of the way that the data was used and the way that the data was shown to be the same pretty much in, in, in both groups of patients within the trial. So really interesting stuff. Yeah, very efficient use of the data in the TTM trial. Yeah, and we're seeing that a lot more, aren't we, in a lot of studies that there's the main question, but then because of all the time and the effort and and cost that people are doing these pre-planned analyses to determine whether or not there's something else we should be looking for. So, you know, maybe not ready for prime time just yet, but I reckon we'll be seeing this in practice. Or, I take that back, we may see this in practice in the future. Yeah, a lot of potential. Yeah. Uh, the next thing that we had in January was a, a signpost to our critical appraisal ebook. Yay! And the Journal Club series that we've got at St Edmunds is really one of our highlights, one of the great strengths. We're very proud of this Journal Club series, advocating for evidence-based medicine, uh, highlighting the latest research, explaining it, making it accessible, telling the story and summarising the findings succinctly. Uh, we've had some fantastic contributions from the whole of our team, and uh, this ebook celebrates all of those contributions over the last uh, 12 months. Last 12 months, so we're going to do this on an annual basis. Um, also, a big shout-out to people like Ken Mill and the SGEM, who've been doing this for a long period of time. So I think, it's, I think it's great that we've managed to put it together. I think it's fantastic that people like Ken Milne have done it. And it's really about making evidence accessible to as many people as possible it's free you can download it from the site you can download it from um, ibooks um, or you can download a pdf from ResearchGate. so whatever system you're using you can you can have a look in there and then it's actually there's, there's two journal clubs this month actually three so we talked about the neurofilament light chains there was one about pre-medication with midazolam or haloperidol for ketamine sedation i don't i don't know what your practice is do you do you pre-medicate when you're giving ketamine sedation uh, no i don't no, neither do I. Um, but these guys did. They did a randomised control trial, um, which was interesting. And they showed that if you do pre-medicate, in their opinion, you've got slightly less complications in terms of abnormal behaviours and emergence phenomena. They've come to a, a conclusion that it's a good idea. I, I did the, the critical phrase. I wasn't entirely sure because I didn't think the differences were that big. And actually... In terms of time for recovery, both the midazolam and the haloperidol cause fairly significant increases in the time that the patients take to recover. That means more time in the recess, more nursing time. I wasn't entirely convinced about it. But, you know, um, I think it's interesting. I think the data um, is good to have out there. I'm glad that they've done the trial. If you've got problems with emergency phenomena, you might consider doing this. I'm not massively convinced as yet. I'm not going to change practice, but you? Yeah, well, no, I won't uh, change my practice. But I do think they've addressed an important point because they can be quite troublesome when you get emergence phenomena in some patients. So, yeah, interesting concept. Not one I've heard about before, this uh, paper, and one to follow. Yeah, and in kids, if you do kids um, and ketamine, we've, we don't really use it in midazolam in, in kids. I think what I might do is I might be selective. If I think a patient's already very agitated or I think they're, for whatever reason, at risk of emergence phenomena, I might give them a little bit of midaz, but routinely probably not. But read the paper. Don't take my word for it, or Rick's, um, and decide for yourself. And the other German club paper that we, or blog post that we've released in this month uh, was your own, Simon, on HEMS. Yeah. Uh, can HEMS improve outcome in traumatic cardiac arrest? So sure to be controversial. 
Yeah, anything to do with HEMS, isn't it? And um, I'm a big advocate for pre-hospital care, as you know. But the evidence to back it up sometimes is, is difficult to find and difficult to define. There's an interesting study from the UK looking at the, the the interventions. They've taken an interesting approach. They've looked at what interventions are delivered to patients who have traumatic cardiac arrest from a, a UK-based HEMS service. And unsurprisingly, I think that if you look at the patients who they're dispatched to, lots of the patients with traumatic cardiac arrest have high-level HEMS interventions. So things like RSI with drugs, thoracotomies, use of blood, intraosseous needles, all of that kind of stuff. And so you can demonstrate that there is arguably a need for this group of patients to have those interventions which only HEMS can deliver in the UK. My question is, of course, is so what? Just because you're doing stuff, does it make a difference? And when you plug into the data, again, it becomes a little bit more difficult for us to demonstrate that it really makes a difference because only a very small number of patients actually survived. So seven patients survived. And of those, all of them had got ROSC return of spontaneous circulation before the arrival of the HEMS team. So the interventions that HEMS did didn't get them out of arrest, which questions how much of importance it is. Now, the counter-argument to that is, well, actually, once you've got ROSC, then you still need those interventions. I, you know, you've got ROSC, now this patient needs an RSI, now they might need some blood, now they may, might need some interosseous. So the debate, one way or the other, isn't defined by this paper, but seven patients surviving out of the, the large number of patients that they went to, 263, and they all got ROS before they arrived. That's a lot of flying around. It's a lot of intervention. It's a lot of cost. We need to think, we need to have some big and honest conversations about that. Much as I'm an advocate for it, maybe this isn't the group of patients who are going to be the best in terms of your resource utilization, but that's not a conversation for me. And I know that that will upset everybody who flies helicopters. But, you know, that's what the evidence shows. These guys published it. Yeah, that's right. And it's, uh, you know, these things are sure to polarise opinion, generate a lot of conversation. And you know, that, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Uh, by having those conversations and sharing our opinions, that's where we arrive at what will ultimately be best. And, uh, you know, this paper was produced by some real giants in the field. Richard Lyon, great guy, and Eva Turavest, and they've got great uh, been producing some great research for a good number of years now. Again, in their defence, one of the things I do like about KSS HEMS and London HEMS is they are absolutely up about publishing their data, making it public and opening those debates. And they're not frightened of having these these conversations. And I think that's what we need from all our services, not just HEMS services, but all critical care and emergency medicine services. And if more people acted like they did, we'd be in a better place. So I think that brings us to a close, really. It covers everything that we produced in January. It's been a really good month for St. Hamlin's blog. Yeah, it's been good fun. Um, lots of things planned for next month, of course. Um, I'm off to Jeddah. Wee. That's going to be very exciting. Can't wait to hear about uh, your trip. And we'll do some more um, stuff on the, on the blog and the website. I think what we're thinking about now is, are we going to run St. Emily's Live again? Are we going to run the teaching course again? <sighs> Not sure. What do you think? Let us know. And um, we'll tell you more in the next month. Yeah, give us your ideas. We yep. want some ideas about how we might run St. Edmunds Live, how we might be innovative, yeah, how we, we advance the frontiers of medical conferences. Yeah, because we want to do something different. We want to do something different, and we're going to put our heads together and think about what, exactly what that is. But in the meantime, enjoy your emergency medicine, have fun. Take care. Just before you go, we've got a small favour to ask. Since 2012, we've funded the blog and the podcast and everything around it from our own funds. And it's been great. We've really enjoyed doing it. 
But the block and the podcast have grown. And now we've got such bandwidth and such people contacting us from around the world and listening that it's actually starting to get quite expensive. So if you feel like you can contribute even a tiny amount, then just whiz onto the blog, look on there and you can make a small donation or even subscribe on a regular basis. Even a small amount of cash might make a big difference and help us keep St. Emily's free open access medical education. Thank you for your time. Thank you.